Exodus chapter 38 deals specifically with the preparation of the tabernacle. And not specifically the the tent of the tabernacle, but the other uh, outlying areas and other specific uh, points. And But I want to talk to you tonight with that in mind. It has to do with the tabernacle, but it really is about a point of contact. God is all about, you know, from the creation, God has been working to bring people to himself, to complete his plan on our behalf. And it started out pretty simply. Just two people. But, you know, people are gifted at taking a simple thing and making it completely incomprehensible so that nobody could ever figure it out. It's called the Gordian Knot. You know, there's no way. And so, just ten generations in, it was so bad that God had to use the divine eraser and start over with one family again. Unfortunately, and that is the initial judgment of God upon this planet. That is the backstory to everything that happens here every day. All the while, God is trying to accomplish, and I want to just share this Hebrews. We're going to lean on Hebrews pretty heavily today. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 to 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none of them his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. This has been his plan from before the creation of Adam and Eve. This is his purpose going forward. Here in Exodus, God is engaged in this same process of connecting the children of Abraham, most of whom, by the time we get to chapter 38 here, most of whom are just starting to get some understanding of who God is and the idea that he actually has a purpose for their individual lives. And he has a purpose for their individual families. And that he has a purpose for them as a nation of people. They're starting to connect the dots and put it together. But unfortunately, these people who are on the, on the spot on this day, unfortunately, these people, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, are not going to actually enter the promised land because they're lacking a very important component. And that component we find in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Speaking of these people in in Exodus 38. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For if we who have believed do enter that rest, and and if you ever get talking to a Seventh-day Adventist, you want to replace that, that rest with the words, Jesus Christ, do enter Jesus Christ, because he is our Sabbath rest. Jesus Christ is the reason you don't have to worship on Saturday. He is the Sabbath rest, and you have entered that Sabbath rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath, they, speaking of the people in Exodus 38, shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Faith is... Again, Hebrews 11.1, 1, 
Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You can spend some time on that. But it is also revealed in the lives of people that conduct themselves in agreement to the revealed word of God. Faith may be an idea inside of you, a conviction that you have, but it will always show up in an obedient response to the word of God. And that is important. Why? Because Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now that verse I suggest you memorize because it tells us three things that are very important. One, no faith, no pleasing God. Two, faith is believing that God is. And three, faith is understanding about his nature. Those who seek him diligently will be rewarded. That tells you about who he is, his nature. And it is important for you as a follower to be understanding of it. God desires this for us so we would understand his nature. And again, that shows up pretty powerfully all throughout Hebrews chapter 11, what we call the hall of faith and the life of all those people, as it does in our lives. We just haven't been written down in some book yet, as far as we know. For us today, God is working in Exodus 38 to connect the children of Abraham to himself in an extremely practical way, very practical way. He wants to connect them to a schoolmaster. I think the New King James calls it a tutor that will lead them to Jesus. Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now you and I might say, well, why is it, God, why did you have to go through all this rigmarole with the law of Moses and all this stuff to get these people? Don't imagine that you understand the difference between who you are in your culture and who these people were 3,500 years ago. Don't imagine, don't be so presumptuous to imagine that you really understand why God couldn't do things differently than he did. Don't imagine that God loves you any more than he loved those people who were eternally separated from him under these circumstances as he struggled with them to get them to engage and understand and connect. And he did struggle with them. The way God wants to connect us, let's call it a point of contact. Now, in most cultures, people like to use statues to connect with their object of worship. This is a common human device throughout the history of the world, everywhere you go. That is not going to work for the Lord. If for no other reason than he wants to really freak out the anthropologists over the last 4,000 plus years, as they have tried to figure out how it is that this Judeo-Christian system of worship came up with the idea of a God of which no image could be made, which, by the way, is unique in all of human history. Where did they get that idea? The anthropologists are beating themselves over the heads. Where did they get this idea? They didn't. It was his idea. It wasn't our idea. It came from outside of it. But, of course, in order to understand that idea, you have to realize that there is someone outside bringing information in. And that is exactly what he did. God still needs to give people a point of contact with him. And, you know, it's a thing that we even find in the New Testament. 
with people that are believers in Christ coming to an understanding of the fulfillment of God's promise. Christ died on the cross. I'm born again. I have a new relationship. Still, there is a need for me to have that point of contact and draw near to him. Something you and I deal with daily. There is stuff God's wanting me to understand that I'm not getting. And I need, sometimes that point of contact is a verse of scripture that God just blows my brains away with. Sometimes it's a word from somebody else. I can't tell you how many times I come to this place and God speaks to me through the fellowship I have with other people that I talk to around here and ministers to my heart, instructs me. You know, sometimes it is an object lesson in the world of people who don't even know who God is. And I see them doing things and I think, oh my goodness, look at this picture. It's a parable. We see in Acts chapter 19 in the city of Corinth, Apostle Paul suffering all kinds of conflict while God works powerfully. And even here, God uses points of contact to help the people understand and to connect with his presence. Acts 19.11. Now God worked unusual miracles. I love that. As opposed to the normal miracles that God does all the time. This, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them. Evil spirits went out of them. Did God need the handkerchiefs or aprons? He absolutely did not. Did God need Paul? No, he did not. Why does he choose to reveal himself in such a way? Did he, did he not know that we would have to deal with generations of televangelists merchandising the people of God by selling healing handkerchiefs over the radio and television? Of course he knew that was going to happen. God cannot be held responsible for the corruptions that mankind will contrive from his amazing and the beautiful things that he does. Luke 17, 1 says, he said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through who they do come. Why does he choose to reveal himself in such a way? The real issue is the point of contact to those that are sincerely seeking the Lord. The point of contact is a device, an appliance, even a person that God uses to help people in their understanding of the operation of his truth. Here in Exodus 38, certainly not identical to that New Testament example, but in a similar way, God is helping the nation of Israel to connect by installing this amazing foundation into their national identity. Okay? One that will speak to them across the ages. In no uncertain terms, it will be very clear. They will know who God is. They will know what he requires. They will know his personality if they will invest themselves to get the information. And that's what the tabernacle as a whole is all about. Here in, in chapter 38, we have the account of the production, the actual manufacture of different parts of the tabernacle structure and the outlying uh, concerns. Uh, we, in, in verses 1 through 7, we're talking about the altar of burnt offering. In verse 8, about the lever, the wash, wash basin that's uh, made from bronze. Uh, in verses 9 through 20, the courtyard around the tabernacle. In uh, verses 21 through 23, we have the testimony of the tabernacle inventory and the personnel who were involved in building it. And then in verses 24 through 31, the source and function of the different precious metals that are used in this situation. And it might sound kind of really academic. And if you read through this chapter in 10 minutes, it's going to sound nothing but 
really academic. It's not. It's not, you guys. Let me, let me uh, illustrate for you. The altar of burnt offering and its accessories. He made the altar a burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length. Five cubits was its width. It was square. Its height was three cubits, almost five feet. He made the horns on its corners, were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with bronze. He made all the utensils for the altar, the pans, shovels, the basins, the forks, the fire pans. All its utensils were made of bronze. And he made the grate of bronze, the network for the altar, under its rim, midway from the bottom. The altar of burnt offering is seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet, approximately. Cubits 18 inches or so, tip of your finger to your elbow. Seven and a half by seven and a half, about five and a four and a half feet high off the ground. Uh, this one is being constructed. This is the end of the 15th century BC. Okay, it was in service one way or another, citing throughout the scripture. If you look through, there are numerous places where it is repaired. Not just the altar, but all of the tabernacle articles. First um, Chronicles 26, 24. And 34 until about 950 BC, from 1430 to 950 BC is the inaug- uh, 950 BC. We have the inauguration of the temple. In my estimation, that's about 480 years, give or take a few, that this altar was in service. Because at the construction of the temple, at the beginning of Solomon's reign, he constructed a much larger, actually, an altar that is four times bigger. It's 30 by 30. Huge. Second uh, Chronicles 4, one moreover, he made a bronze altar of 20 cubits. Was its length 20 cubits is width, 10 cubits high. In 1 Kings uh, 9.10, it happened at the end of 20 years. It took 20 years from the time Solomon became king before the uh, temple in Jerusalem was actually inaugurated. And Solomon's house and the temple were inaugurated at the same time. So Solomon started his reign, took him 20 years to complete the temple. Uh, we can, we can roughly come to the same conclusions about the other furnishings of the tabernacle, which all were mothballed, whichever of them were still around at this time. The altar of incense, table of showbread, the menorah, the veil between the holy place and the most holy, the bronze laver, the other utensils were all replaced at the Lord's direction. The only exception, of course, would be the Ark of the Covenant, which went from Jerusalem it's actually, it's very interesting. If you go through and do a study, you'll find that the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem, while actually the tabernacle and all of the other furnishings that I just listed for you are not in Jerusalem. They're separated. And they have been separated for some years, for a good uh, 60 years, from perhaps as far back as when the, Philippine, when the uh, Philistines took the... Uh, no, Philipp- no Filipinos in here. So. When the Philistines took... Except you. Uh, When the the Philistines took the altar captive and then brought it back, they may have been separated from that time forward. The last historical mention of the Ark of the Covenant in Scripture is in 2 Chronicles 35, King Josiah, who reigned from Jerusalem, asked the Levites to return the Ark to the temple where Solomon had originally housed it after 
completing and dedicating the temple. Sometime after the 10th century B.C., 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Now, the Levites had removed the ark in the first place. If we believe that the ark stayed in the temple until 586 B.C., this is the Babylonian captivity, the last siege of Jerusalem with Nebuchadnezzar, then that adds an additional 364 years, making the ark about 850 years old and 586 B.C. Pretty old. Not a lot of wood stuff holds up for 600 years. But, I mean, if you take for an example the artifacts coming out of King Tut's uh, tomb, some of those are older. And if you take a piece of hardwood and you overlay it with gold and it's well constructed to begin with, we're talking about well over a couple of thousand years for the stuff that's in Tut's tomb. One of the things we want to remember as we look at the construction and the preparation of these features we're talking about today is the scope of the project. Two and a half million people in the nation Israel coming out of Egypt in the wilderness, putting these details together. There is virtually no one in the nation that is not either directly or indirectly involved in the collection of materials, planning, design, manufacture, construction, and operation of these things. Everybody has a hand on this project. And again, this has the fingerprints of God all over it. This is his plan for the families of the day. It's not other people working on this project. It's us. And that prompts, promotes really a very important detail. That is ownership from the least to the greatest. This is what the Lord does. He's not the God of the elite, of the leaders, of the rulers, of the planners, the intelligentsia. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the children of Israel. This is your church. This is not Xavier's church. This is not the church of the pastors or the leaders or the committees or some other group of people. This is your church. These little crazy kids run around the gymnasium after services. They are your family. You have a responsibility to watch out for them, to be concerned with their care. And their protection, the single women who go to this church, you have a responsibility to be concerned about their care. Single moms, people who are some of the greatest people you ever meet in your life, go out and work 40, 60 hours a week, provide for their kids, come home, teach them the Bible, truck, tuck them into bed at night, and bless them and care for them. These are people you need to be concerned because they are your family. This is your church as much as it is anybody's church. It is no more any other person's than it is yours. He gives us the size and the materials here. Acacia wood, again, one of the hardest hardwoods. Uh, I read one source said it's 70% harder than European white oak. 70%. European white oak's pretty hard stuff. <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine. But uh, very durable. In this case, covered with bronze. Bronze throughout the scripture it represents, indicates judgment. Okay? Very appropriate as the purpose of this altar is to incinerate the sacrifices pointing to what? The certainty of God's judgment and the penalty of sin satisfying God's justice and his nature. No specifics of the utensils. We have a list in verse 3, pans, shovels, basins, forks, and fire pans. Whatever they needed, I'm sure, all from bronze as well as the altar overlaying the wood. The construction and the placement of the grate, it's like a giant fire pit or barbecue, except everything gets burnt to a crisp. Keep in mind, this is outside the place of worship, outside the tabernacle, out in front of it, the, the holy place. 
This is what priests do before offering incense or sprinkling blood on the altar or placing the showbread. In some ways, it's a prerequisite. In verses 5 through 7, he cast four rings for the corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them also with bronze. Then he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar, which is to bear it. And he made the altar hollow with boards. Everything involved in the articles of worship from the tabernacle to the altars to the ark is all portable by design. This speaks to a couple of different very important issues. There is no designated location to worship the Lord. There is a place where? Wherever the tabernacle is. That's the place where you worship God. And this will be the case for the next 480 so years until the building of the temple and everything is made for moving at this time. The children of Israel are in transition. They're leaving Egypt. They're going to the promised land. And there is another reason for this as well. Because God is not limited to a particular geographic area. This is particularly a difficult concept to lose for people that have a national God. Particularly people as they relate to their local deities. Essentially, they're connected to that location. Uh, Consider the example of Warfare that goes on. The kings of Syria come against Israel in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 23. And the servants of the kings of Syria said to them, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they are stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. See, this is the mindset of the day. Our God blesses us because we're in the plain. Our gods are working the plain. The gods that work up in the mountains, that's different, you know. And the, we would understand this as foolishness, but it is the mindset of the people of the day, the idolatrous persons. This is one of the reasons that the Assyrians were so successful with transpopulation. You separate people from their land, from their heritage, and from their gods. You separate them from everything about their culture. You move them to a whole other world, and they no longer relate as the people who could be, have their previous cultural understanding or their heritage. When Solomon makes a resting place for the ark, that it should travel no more. Second Chronicles 3.1 So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold. All the furnishings, he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Now Solomon assembled the elders, all the heads of the tribes of Israel, the chief fathers, the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David to Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was in the seventh month. And so the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark and they brought the ark into the tabernacle of meeting and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and Levites also brought them up. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark, were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark in its poles. 
And the poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from outside and they are there to this day. Okay. Second Chronicles 5.1. Solomon has the ark brought into the holy, holy of the temple. They put it in. And when they put it in, the poles are there. This is its resting place. This is where it's going to stay forever. The poles are there. And from the holy place, from the table of showbread, from the altar of incense, from out there, from where the menorah is, you can see the poles sticking out behind the veil. You can't see the ark, but you can see the poles. And there it is to this day. Until, you know, Lord willing, 586, when Nebuchadnezzar had the whole thing destroyed. The point here being that the children of Israel should never forget their connection to the Lord is a moving target. Otherwise, he would have taken those poles out and said, we don't need those anymore. We're not moving it anymore. That's where it's going to snow. It's a moving target. Their connection to God was about the land, but more importantly, it was about them as a family of individuals. And he would promise to never leave them or forsake them. This is the thing that's so important about the prophet Ezekiel being in Babylon during the captivity. As God spoke to the people there, they had to recalibrate their brain. God is still speaking to them. Hey, we're in Babylon. You know, we're, we're a thousand miles from our home. How can God still be dealing with us? Absolutely. God's right here. He's right here right now. And he's dealing with us. Joshua 5.1. The Lord tells Joshua, I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Moving on from the altar of burnt offering, those things not purified by fire will be purified by water before entering the service of the Lord. In verse 8, we have the laver. He made the laver, the sink, big sink, big tub of bronze, its base of bronze, and the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. That's what they were made from. Primary purpose laid out for us in Exodus. Chapter 30, verses 18 through 21. You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. By the way, this verse 19, Exodus 30, 19. This is where Islam got this ever important thing in their worship of washing their hands and feet before they go into a mosque. This is where it comes from. Uh, Muhammad and his friends were gifted at pirating all kinds of stuff from Christianity and Judaism. Um, when they go into the tabernacle of meeting, is this a serious issue that the priests should wash their hands and feet? When they go into the tabernacle of the meeting, when they come near the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. Yeah, yeah that's, I think that's serious. So they wash their hands and feet lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever for them and to him and his descendants throughout all generations. This piece of furniture was sourced specifically from bronze polished mirrors belonging to the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now we can assume actually when it says that the phrase there, women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle, that's really a military phrase in the Hebrew, I am told. 
Okay, it's th- these were an organized group of women who were there to benefit and serve and to help the Levites in the work that they did day by day, week by week. We can assume they were all about assisting the duties of the Levites, blessed to be able to help with the necessary supplies for the tabernacle. Also interested thing here is that the bronze came from mirrors. You know, um, again, bronze is indicative of judgment. Uh, the brazen altar, the brazen servant. Uh, Leviticus 26.19, I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Judgment. If you had to choose one human trait as the most destructive impulse working in our collective psyche, maybe responsible for more destruction than any other human inclination, I would have to say that that inclination is selfishness. And so it is a little more than a little ironic that bronze used uh, to clean up priestly flesh was prepared for the service of God that it would come from mirrors. Yeah, seems ironic to me. In verses 9 through 20, we sanctify the tabernacle from surrounding influences with the courtyard around the tabernacle, with its supports, its accessories, south and north sides. Verse 9 it says, then he made the court on the south side. The hanging of the court were of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long. There were 20 pillars for them with 20 bronze sockets. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. On the north side, the hangings were 100 cubits and 20 pillars. And their 20 bronze sockets with the hooks and pillars and their bands were silver. The Lord is creating a courtyard of separation around the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the tabernacle, folks, is all about graduated access. <coughs> Excuse me. We start with all Israel, start with the world. Then you have Israel, all Israel, all the tribes camped out around the tabernacle in specific order. Then in, inside the court, you have the priests and the Levites that were able to come into the holy place, offer sacrifice, wash themselves, go into the tabernacle. And then, inside the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant, where the high priest only goes once a year and not without blood on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. In a similar way, the ministry of Jesus is made up of concentric circles of people that have different access. You've got the multitude, the thousands that came and saw Jesus from half a block away and said, did he heal that guy? Did he really heal that guy? Did he... Was that guy really dead? Wow, that's wild. I can't believe that. And then you had the disciples who were close enough, who knew Jesus personally, of which we have 120 on the day of Pentecost in the upper room. Those were disciples. Then you have the 12, the apostles. Now, they had, they knew Jesus intimately. They walked with Jesus everywhere they spent. They talked to Jesus. They could ask Jesus questions. They went with him everywhere. And then you had the circle of Peter, James, and John, who were singled out for special attention that God evidently chose for a special kind of tutorial. They would get this. They went up and saw Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They went places nobody else went. Peter, James, and John. Then, as Jesus went off by himself, you had the most innermost circle of Jesus and the Father together. 
as Jesus would go off and pray, spend time with the Father. John sixteen seven, Jesus tells the disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And as Christ raised from the dead and sent his spirit to you, he's created an opportunity to place you in the Holy of Holies. You are in the inner circle with Jesus and the Father. We have access. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace for help in the time of need. We have that access that the Lord's intended. One of the reasons we don't need a structure, we are the church. We are the structure. We are the body of Christ. It all happens right here. In verse 9, he says, Then he made the court. Again, we're indicating that this is about the literal construction and assembly. Instead of just passing out the, the plans or giving understanding, this is about literally constructing the assembly of the tabernacle its accessories. Here, the courtyard, they're building the whole thing, uh, was of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long on the north and the south ends. This courtyard is to separate the tabernacle from the outside world. Most importantly, to give the people a sense of separation, being sanctified, being set apart. This is who God is. God is holy. We can't forget that. God is not like us. We need to take, take steps to remind ourselves of how dramatically different God is from us. You know, I was really blessed listening to Daryl's worship set. Um, he was having a lot of fun and playing and everybody was getting riled up a little bit with some of the songs. But then you'll notice the Lord led him to really just kind of stop and to really take some time with the last couple of songs that he did. And, and you know, that really spoke to me. That spoke to me is, you know, we, we need to remember who we're worshiping here. We need to remember what's going on, who, who we are and who God is. You know, I have, to, I have to sanctify the Lord in my thoughts to sanctify him and recognize the reality of what it is that I'm dealing with here. What is it that sets people apart from the corruption of the world? Lord, the Lord does that. But there are some necessary, there is necessary input on our part. And the fine linen in Scripture is identified with a particular kind of conduct in Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. To her it was granted, speaking of the church, to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now the linen used in this courtyard was not colored in any way. So it's Whitish, it may not have been bright white, but it was fine linen. And so the, the implication is there for us. This is the righteous acts of God's people. The presence of the Lord sets people apart in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. But a part of that equation is the conduct and commitment of his people, the righteous acts of the saints. And let me tell you, because I know you guys are all horrible, ridiculous sinners, that that commitment and conduct just means you just keep getting up. You ain't going to lay down for nothing. I don't care how many times you drop the ball. You get back up. 
<coughs> you continue to faithfully follow as best you can, day at a time. And with that in mind, I might mention that some of your wives are taking off this weekend. And your level of accountability is going to go from here to here. Overnight, your level of accountability is going to disappear. And, and you need to prepare yourself today and tomorrow and Friday for how you're going to conduct yourself this weekend while your wives are gone. Now, certainly nothing like this has ever happened to me, but I just want to let you guys know because you're not fooling me. You know, I know from personal experience that you guys are all evil. Why are you looking at me like that? I can't believe you. <laughs> God help us. The righteous acts of the saints keep us from the diseased heart of this present world. There are 20 pillars on the, the side that's 100 cubits long. 100 cubits, that's 150 feet of linen. Pillar about every 7.5 feet. Pillars are about 7.5 feet high with bronze sockets attaching them to the ground. Hooks of the pillars and their bands are silver. Each pillar has a bronze socket. In other words, there's a foundation in the judgment of God. Just like we have a foundation of the flood of Noah that the world has somehow done away with. It's disappeared. But it is the foundation of an understanding of the God who we deal with. It's necessary. The judgment of God is the foundation that holds the details of our lives together. And when you, when you do mess up, when you drop the ball and you sin against the Lord in your life, or you transgress knowingly, when that takes place, the fear of God Almighty comes upon you. If you're born again, the fear of God comes upon you. And you are, are despised in your own esteem. You feel that separation from God. And that is the judgment. That's the foundation we need the righteous acts in our lives to straighten and encourage and strengthen us. The hooks and the bands are silver. It's held together with righteousness. Silver is indicative of righteousness. So it holds the thing together. Righteous acts of the saints held together with righteousness. The north side is identical to the south side in every aspect. Verse 12, on the west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits. So it's half as wide. It's a perfect rectangle, if you will. Ten pillars and ten sockets, and the hooks and the pillars and the bands are of silver. For the east side, the hangings were 50 cubits, and the hangings on one side of the gate were 15 cubits long, with three pillars and three sockets. And at the same time, on the other side, the court of the gate, on this side, that were hangings of 15 cubits, and there are three pillars of three sockets. And all the hangings of the court were of fine woven linen. Okay, now... Let me explain that to you. On the west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits with 10 pillars, 10 sockets. So the construction's identical on both sides. But the west side was half the distance, 75 feet instead of 150. The height uh, with the half pillars secured in the same way. The east side is a little bit different. The entrance to the courtyard is going to be on the east. And so in verse 13, starts out saying that dimensions are identical. But in 14, we see that they have divided the east side into thirds with the center part serving as the gate with three pillars there. So you have the north and south, 150 feet. 
you have the, the west side, 75 feet, and then you have the east side, it's divided into thirds. The center third is a gate that you can go in, and there are special pillars there. In verse 17, the sockets of those pillars are bronze, the hooks of the pillars and the bands are silver, and the overlay of their capitals. So these pillars in the middle where the gate is, it has little capitals on it, were silver, and all the pillars of the court had bands of silver, the screen for the gate of the court. So there's a screen where you go in and out of the courtyard was woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and a fine woven linen. The length of it was 20 cubits. The height along it was five cubits corresponding to the hangings, hangings of the court. And there were four pillars with their four sockets of bronze. Their hooks were silver. The overlay of their capitals and their bands were silver. And all the pegs of the tabernacle and of the court all around were bronze. So... The gate of the courtyard has capitals above the pillars that hold the panels in place. Uh, the sides do not have, uh, and this is really indicating that the gate has some greater significance. It is exalted, and we'll get to that in just a second. Verse 17, sockets for the pillars are bronze. The hooks of the pillars and the bands were silver. The overlay of the capitals were silver, and all the pillars of the court had bands of silver. The whole court is fine linen, except the gate. In verse 18, the screen of the gate was woven of blue, purple, and scarlet. Now, you're going to see a lot of examples, if you look at illustrations, where they'll do stripes. It'll be blue, purple, and scarlet. It doesn't say that. I really don't believe it indicates that necessarily. Could that be the case? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know. But we know that, for instance, um, the, the screen entrance to the, the courtyard, right, is very similar to the entrance to the tabernacle. Exodus 26, 36. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven livid, made by the weaver. And similar to the veil between the holy place and the holiest of all, the veil described in Exodus 26, 31. You'll make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen, and it shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. Now notice, so all three of these doors, the doors to the courtyard, the doors to the tabernacle, and the door to the Holy of Holies are all similar in appearance, except the door to the Holy of Holies has cherubim woven into it, okay? The interesting difference there, the images of the cherubim woven into, why? Why is there an image of a cherub there? People are drawn to images, aren't they? but not if they can't see them. And so from outside, if you were not a Levite, from outside the courtyard of the tabernacle, you're never going to see an image of anything. No image of any. Closest you're going to get to an image is maybe you'll see the horn of the altar. Looks like a horn. What's that? I don't know. It could be anything. But you're not going to see an image of anything. Only the Levites, the priests that go into the holy place are going to see the images of the cherubims on the roof of the tabernacle. They're going to see the images of the cherubs on the veil between the holy place and the most holy place. They're the only ones who are going to see it because, because they should know better. Because they, as priests, they should know better than to be caught up in worship of images. And if not, like, like uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they will be sorted out by the Lord. You know, Nadab and Abihu were offered strange fire before the Lord, and uh, Moses had to have guys go in and pick up their remains 
because God smoked them right there in, inside the holy place and because they were not responsible, because they did not sanctify the Lord wholly in their heart and mind. A failure to acknowledge who God is, guys, is such a huge thing. God is holy. Does God really love you? Does he really care about you? Are you significant to him? Absolutely. You are huge to him. You are, you are a big deal. He will do anything for you, anything that he can do. And you need to know that. But at the same time, you've got to realize that we have a responsibility in the way that we relate to the Lord, in the way that we talk about him, in the way that we talk to him, to exalt him to the position that he truly deserves. And if we fail to do that, we lose connection with him. And there are consequences in our lives. The interest, entrance on the east, just like the Messiah's entrance to the Temple Mount. It's interesting the way the sides of this courtyard kind of describe the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You start out from lesser to greater. The south side of the temple, which if you look at that picture right there uh, above Jonathan Revelo's head, that's standing looking north from the steps on the south side of the temple. Behind you is the Valley of Hinnom. This is where all the really gross idolatry went on in the city of Jerusalem. It's also where the city dump, because the prevailing wind blows from north to south, it's where the city dump was, where the dead bodies were dumped. And when Jesus told people they were going to fall under God's judgment, he used the word Gehenna. You will go into Gehenna, where there's gnashing of teeth and worms don't die. And the fire never goes out. Gehenna is the name of the dump that was on the south side of the city in the valley of Hinnom. That's where it was. Where my buddy Joey's going pretty soon. He's going to get to go see it in person. You know, thank you, Lord. But, um, okay, so the north, then he goes from south to north. The north side of the city is the side of the city that was always overcome in battle. Whenever they were attacked, whether it was by the Romans or the Babylonians or whoever, it was the only side of the city could ever be breached by an oncoming army. Then you have the west side that came next. The west side is the dwelling place of the nobility. It's where people like Caiaphas and his house was on the western side of the city. And then you have the eastern side, right on the Kidron Valley, which is the Messiah's entrance. It's where the Messiah is going to come in to the city of Jerusalem through that east gate. And interestingly enough, on the, the uh, uh, tabernacle courtyard, he puts the entrance right in the same place. So as we look at the court in a picture, we have this fine linen, the righteous acts of God's people, anchored by the judgment, the bronze sockets, secured by righteousness and silver bands and hooks in the capitals of the gate. And that gate, the priests enter through, not... It's fine linen, and it's blue, purple, and scarlet. And what is blue? What's blue? Huh? What, what is blue for? Yeah, go ahead, Joey. Sky. Sky is blue. What's the Hebrew word for the sky? Heaven. That is the Hebrew word for the sky. There's a heaven and a heaven of the heavens. Yeah. So it's blue. And purple, what's what's purple? Royalty. Well, okay, what, what is royalty in heaven? Well, that's deity. Royalty in heaven is deity. 
And what's scarlet? Blood. Okay? So how do you enter through this door? From heaven, the king by blood, or maybe by the blood of the king from heaven. John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 1 John three twenty three, and this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. The name Jesus is a Greek word, right? It's a contraction from the Hebrew word Joshua. Joshua is a contraction as well. It's Jehovah Shua, Yahweh Shua. What that really means is God is salvation. That's what Jesus means. His name means God is salvation. And it is his name that saves us. He is the door. Just as he was the door in the courtyard, just as he was the door to the tabernacle, just as he was the door to the Holy of Holies. The king from heaven who comes by blood. In verse 20, all the pegs of the tabernacle and of the court all around were bronze. We rely upon the grace of God, but the truth that gives that grace such a powerful weight is the presence at every step of God's judgment and his justice. Just as these pegs of bronze hold the structure securely. The testimony in of the tabernacle inventory and the personnel. Again, this, this kind of looks like uh, minutiae. looks like uh, um, details of uh, some uh, inventory expert. You know, this is the inventory of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Beziel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses And with him was Aholiad, the son of Asimach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer, a weaver of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and a fine linen. The inventory is here indicating the completion of all that was to be produced by the tabernacle. We have the overseers in verse 21. The inventory of the tabernacle and of the testimony counted according to the commandment of Moses by the Levites, the hand of Ithamar. This guy Ithamar is Aaron's son. You find him in Exodus 6.23. He may not show up prominently in the narrative like a lot of us don't show up prominently, but don't be fooled. He answers directly to Moses and Aaron. And I imagine if you were having a problem in constructing the tabernacle, he's the guy you would want to talk to. You wouldn't want to talk to Moses and Aaron. Probably not a good idea. The artists in verse 22. Beziel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, made all the Lord had commanded. This guy Beziel, the son of Uri, is a very special person in the history of Israel. Remembered in the scripture... Up to 530 years later in Second Chronicles 115, where it talks about the bronze altar that he made. He's recorded there. Now, a lot of people, uh, Bible scholars believe that Chronicles was written by Ezra. And if that's the case, then this is some 650 years later that his name is actually included in the, uh, in the narrative and the works of what he did. Not only is he remembered, the objects of worship that he helped design and constructed, lasted 530 years. Safe to say he made an impression upon his world. Of course, he didn't do it all by himself. In verse 23, we have Aholiab, the son of Asimach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer, weaver, purple, scarlet, thread, fine linen. 
no, mal, no doubt, amazingly skilled individual. And you have to ask, you know, what kind of resources did these people have available to them in the wilderness to do this stuff? I mean, as they were on, on the day of the Passover, the firstborn were slain and they're all heading out of town and they're, you know, in Ramses. They go, oh, yeah, let's be sure to take the loom and the weaving machinery. You never know when you're going to need to produce some massive yardage of elaborate world-class textiles in the middle of nowhere. You know, but, but seriously, you know, it's may I mean, these guys, what they were, it reminds me of the saying. We used to have a, a saying for people, you know, we, the unappreciated, working for the ungrateful, have for so long done so much with so little, it is now possible that we can do anything with nothing. Um, the reality of the situation is these guys were so skilled. You know, um, if you're a, a do-it-yourselfer, if you're a, a productive person, you know the idea that if you have the right tools, you can do anything you need to do. Basically, taking care of any job, no matter how daunting, is just a basic... The, the bottom line is you've got to have the right tools to do it. If you do, you can take care of it. One way you can figure it out, you can get it done. These were the guys who made the tools. They, they did not only need the tools, they were able to make the tools that they needed to be able to do the work that they needed to do. This is what you call skill. These people were, were amazingly skilled. These men were greatly appreciated by the Lord. And certainly God in his foresight had provided all that they would need to complete their calling, as he does with all of us, to complete our calling. The raw material inventory, gold, silver, and bronze, and its source here, verse 24, 31, the, all the gold that was used in the work of the holy place, that is the gold of the offering, was 29 talents, 730 shekels, according to the shekel, of the sanctuary. It's an enormous amount of gold, folks. By modern estimation, a talent of gold between 30 and 40 kilograms was worth about 1.25 million U.S. dollars today. The total gold used in the construction of the tabernacle would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 36,600,000 dollars worth of gold by today's inflated value. Accompanied with a silver Silver from those who were numbered, the congregants, was 100 talents. Now, all the gold was given as free will offering. They, people handed it over freely. 36, $36.5 million worth of gold. The silver was taken as a part of it, as, as a temple tax. Okay? Uh, 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A beka, which is half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for everyone included in the numbering from 20 years old and above, 603,550 men. Okay? So the value of the silver is $7,800,000, give or take a little. And so the total value of the precious metal is $44.5 million by today's estimation. And you've got to keep in mind, the tabernacle is not very big. It's not very big at all. Now, the, the courtyard is, uh, is 150 by 75, but the tabernacle only, only occupies about 15% of the total interior area. So it's very small. It's a lot of gold in that building. Pretty amazing, gold and silver. There is some precious metal in the boundary of the courtyard, but by and large, it all dwells in the sanctuary. And at the same time, this is not including the bronze involved, which is quite substantial. Verse 26 breaks down the temple shekel tax as levied upon every male, 603,550 males over the age of 20. 
Meaning what? Meaning that there were 603,548 that would not be entering the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua. Because they're the only two who were taxed who actually entered the promised land. Verses 27, 28, we have the specific use of the silver. From the hundred talents of silver, there were cast sockets of the sanctuary, bases of the veil, 100 sockets from the hundred talents, one talent for each socket. And then from... 1,775 shekels, they made hooks for the pillars, overlaid their capitals, and made bands for them. So again, silver being indicative of righteousness, that which holds together the structure of worship for the general, for that, that matter, human conduct, both in practice, in general. Now, the bases of the tabernacle, the hooks and the bands on the t- tabernacle and also on the courtyard, Without a biblical standard of conduct, there's no hope for human culture, guys. Human culture is always going to degenerate to the lowest common denominator. And unfortunately, modern man has been very creative in the way that he has removed the moral standard from public discourse, including things like the flood, the judgment of God being revealed, the foundation. Back in the middle 1980s, a liberal think tank, very liberal think tank, the Brookings Institute, offered a study concluding that without Judeo-Christian moral foundation, there's no hope of sustaining a Western-based Republican democracy. That was their, their final thought on the issue. And I think we will, we will certainly have an opportunity to see that come to pass. Finally, in verse 29, the inventory of bronze The offering of bronze was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. And with it, he made the sockets for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, bronze altar, bronze grating for it, all the utensils of the altar, the sockets for the court all around, bases for the court gate, all the pegs for the tabernacle, and all the pegs for the court all around. It's amazing that the Israelites carried so much of the good of Egypt with them when they left their captivity. Remember, the scripture says, Moses instructed the Israelites in chapter 3, verse 22, every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver and of gold and of clothing, and you will put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. They took everything the Egyptians had. This was considered back payment for the 400 years of service offered by the Hebrews. So it's not surprising that they had huge amounts of metal objects with them Uh, spread between two and a half million people. All the metal had to be smelted down, purified, cast uh, to specific use. The bronze, the use of the bronze, first the brazen altar and the altar being offering and its utensils. And finally, the sockets for the pillars of the courtyard. Notice the sockets of the door of the tabernacle are also bronze. Why? Because people come and go through there. There's judgment of God as a consideration. The sockets for the sides of the tabernacle are all silver. God's judgment is not a part of that consideration. Just the door where you go in, that's it's bronze still there. But where the people don't pass through the courtyard, it's all bronze all the way around all the sockets. Now the laver, the washing area for the priests uh, is not listed in this section because the inventory came from the donations of these women who gave their mirrors to be melted down to make it. Free will offering and another source. 
But the sockets speak of God's judgment upon this world. The base is attached to the earth, forming a courtyard all around, separating God's holy ministry from the world of common fallen men and women. And then the door of the tabernacle, only the priests went into, but they still are men. So the sockets of the tabernacle door, the tabernacle was silver, but the door was, was bronze at that point. So here, chapter 38, we have an account of the production, the actual manufacture of these things. Altar, burnt offering, laver, courtyard around the temple, the testimony of the tabernacle, the inventory of the personnel, the raw material, and how it was used. Gold, silver, bronze, its source, and its function. Exodus chapter 38. God is helping the nation Israel to connect to him and to understand. He is in the process of installing a foundation into their national identity, one that will speak to them across the ages in no uncertain terms, one that will be very clear. And what will it tell them, this foundation? The foundation that God's putting in in the tabernacle. You know what it's going to tell them? It's going to tell them without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That is the message of the tabernacle. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And that is what the tabernacle is as a whole. It is a signpost to point us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing less. Father, Lord, we want to thank you. We thank you for your word for how faithful you are. Lord, how you bless us with these words. Father, how amazing are your testimonies, Lord, and how, how faithful you are to reveal to us, Lord, the things that you have accomplished. Father, give us understanding. Day by day, Lord, speak to us concerning our lives. Father, our need to sanctify you is holy, to walk with you, to honor you, to serve you. And, Father, to be your upright servants. Lord, we do lift up these ladies going on this conference this weekend, and we pray for them, every single one of them, Lord, that every woman would be encouraged and instructed and blessed, strengthened. Lord, that you protect them, watch over them driving back and forth. And, Father, for their husbands at home, for the men that stay here, Lord, give us an urgency to walk uprightly, to bless our children, and, Father, to lead our households with that urgency that reveals your presence with us. We love you. Father, we thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.